Hello and welcome to the Small Animal Clinical Podcast brought to you from the Royal Veterinary College in London. My name is Shailen Chassani and today it's my great pleasure to welcome Elvin Kalendra. Elvin is a diplomat of the European College of Veterinary Surgery and a lecturer in small animal surgery at the RVC's Queen Mother Hostel for Animals. Elvin spends most of his time at the moment doing orthopaedics. That's right, isn't it? That's correct. Excellent. So thanks very much, Elvin, for joining me today. Um, so today I thought we would discuss a general approach to blunt traumatic limb fractures in dogs and cats. Um, and I'm hoping to provide the listeners with an overview of how to approach these cases and then also to expand a little on a couple of issues of interest that we can discuss. Before we get into the gist of the podcast, I obviously have to start off with my emergency and critical care hat on by reminding the listeners about how we should go about approaching a blunt trauma patient. So in other words, start by focusing on assessing the major body systems and prioritizing life-saving interventions and analgesia. And we will most definitely be coming back to these concepts in a future podcast. But for the purpose of this podcast, Elvin, let's assume that our patient is stable in other respects, okay? Um, now, this probably sounds a little bit daft, but then you already know that about me. I'm daft, and I'm proud to be daft. Um, the first thing I wanted to ask you is, basically, what is going to make us suspect that a limb fracture is present? So, in other words, is it always really obvious? I guess the answer to that is no, it's not always really obvious. Um, animals can present in, in various states from complete uh, non-ambulatory recumbency to a, a localized unilateral lameness. Um, I think in the cases, for example, of the antibrachium or the forelimb, when you have a fracture which is localized just to the ulna or the radius, the other bone can act as an internal splint, and it, and the, and it may not be uh, that there's obvious instability of the limb on manipulation. But I think the most important thing in any case is a complete First of all, a complete physical examination, and once you've done your complete physical examination, is a complete and thorough orthopedic examination to try and localise the source of pain, because it... Can I come back to that? Just yeah. So, yeah. Just out of interest, really, can you, sitting here now, can you think of a patient that didn't have a diagnosis or a highly suspected fracture prior to imaging, and then you found one? Does one come to mind? Or? That sorry, could you say that again? I had a highly so based on everything you knew about the patient, you weren't expecting to find a fracture, and then you imaged it and you found a fracture. Um, Is it pretty unusual? So I guess would, I'm just in the majority of cases, I'd say clinically you would probably suspect a fracture, but there are certainly cases where we haven't suspected a fracture, and then we we have uh, we have seen one. And I guess one that jumps to mind is in young animals, because in young animals the bones tend to be a bit more bendy. The periosteum or the outer layer of the bone is a lot thicker. So you can get what you call green stick fractures where only one cortices may be fractured. Um, And those fractures can be very stable, but animals will still be painful on manipulation over that point. Okay, so I guess in summary of this little bit then, it's, it can be obvious. It's not always obvious. In yeah. most cases, you will have a clinical suspicion, and every so often you might find a fracture that you weren't expecting. Yeah, and the, yes. I mean, the vast majority of, of cases you're, on physical examination, you could probably identify a fracture. Okay. Pelvic fractures may be slightly, diff- slightly more tricky or slightly more difficult. And then on the subject of um, <clears throat> physical exam and orthopedic examinations, I guess one of the things I wanted to ask was... Um, in terms of the value of actually palpating and manipulating 
uh, a suspected fracture site in a conscious patient. Um, so in other words, a patient that hasn't either been sedated or anesthetized. Like, personally, I don't tend to do that because I guess it's not me that needs to know the nature of the fracture anyway. But I guess what's your perspective on that as an orthopedic person? I, I would agree with that. I would think uh, if an animal is excessively painful, uh, as they often are with with fractures, I think there's very little to be gained out of manipulating the the, the joint consciously. Um, but what I would say is very important to do is to assess for deep pain and neurological function okay. before going ahead with, with sedation or um, general anaesthesia and even potentially before giving opioids as well. So, yes, I think these the, one of the first things that we need to do with these patients is analgesia appropriately, but just to assess deep pain before giving analgesia, I think, would, is, is a sensible thing to do. See, now that's a really good point, and doing what I do... Um, I would say that if we were being honest, I think most of us give the analgesia and don't do that yeah. deep pain assessment instinctively. Yeah. Um, so that's a really good point and a good, a good thing for me to take on board as well. Um, so let's move on a little bit then to the situation in which we have our well analgesed but conscious stable patient and you are suspecting a limb fracture. Again, this sounds like a bit of a stupid question in a way, but in essence, what are you going to do next to this patient now? Um, Regardless, obviously we've done our complete general physical examination and we've done our orthopedic examination. In a lot of these cases, um, there can be polytrauma, so that's why it's always, even if a, if a dog is only lame on one leg, it's important to do a complete orthopedic physical examination to make sure there are no concurrent injuries, but also to remember that with blunt trauma patients, if an animal has had... Um, a thoracic limb injury, it's very plausible that they could have had blunt trauma to the chest as well. And in these cases, I would um, strongly recommend that thoracic radiographs are done. Um, thoracic radiographs may reveal something like a diaphragmatic rupture, but you've also got to remember that in cases where there are pulmonary contusions, um, they may not necessarily be evident immediately after trauma, mm. and these patients may have substantial parenchymal um, pathology and, and disease, but that may only become evident radiographically 48 hours down the line. But regardless, I would always take uh, thoracic radiographs, two views of the chest as a minimum, uh, prior to embarking on any surgical intervention with these, um, with these cases. Would you normally... Um, so let's assume our patient's having you know, potent, pure opioid analgesia. <clears throat> Would you look at basically taking those images under that analgesia plus a little bit of sedation? Or you wouldn't go straight to GA? Or? I prefer to do it under general anesthesia okay. because I think, as, you, as we've already said, these patients are often can be quite painful as well. And under general anesthesia, you can make sure that you've got straight radiographs which are going to be important in surgical planning and deciding what you're going to go on and do next. Okay. Um, and, and then in terms of the... Uh, well, I guess one other thing I wanted to ask you was, let's say we've anaesthetized the patient and we've had the conversation already about how much examination you should do in the conscious patient. Yep. So I guess once you've induced anaesthesia, are you going to then focus a bit more on where you think a break is and have a feel, or does it still not really...? No, absolutely. That's a good point, Shailen. Um, I would also assess, uh, go back and assess the um, animal when it's under anaesthesia because... There are things that may not 
be evident on plain survey radiographs that become apparent once you've gone back and looked at the animal. And, and the obvious thing is, for example, ligamentous injuries. Ligamentous injuries of the tarsus or the carpus, where you have um, plantar or uh, instability of the tarsus or palm instability of the carpus. If you, if you take normal survey radiographs, probably the only thing that you will see is a degree of soft tissue swelling around the actual joint. But when you manipulate the joint, you will um, you'll often find clinically there is some instability. And then what I always do then is I go back to the contralateral limb and I have a feel of the contralateral limb and see whether there's any difference clinically between the injured limb and the uh, uninjured limb. At that point, if I, if I do think there is instability, then I would go on and take stress radiographs of that limb to confirm it radiographically. Okay. And so um, kind of grossly on an examination... Uh, do you think ligamentous injuries, they vary in their subtlety? Or I guess what I'm getting at is, would you expect them all to be obvious in a way that first opinion practitioners that aren't spending their whole time doing orthopedics should be able to pick them up? Or do you think that they can No, I think that's a fair point. I think they can, be, um, they can sometimes be tricky, but I would say the vast majority of cases that I've seen, mm. um, if I think clinically there's instability, then it has also been shown that radiographically there is instability. But what radiographs help you um, decide is the level and the nature of the instability. So, for example, in the tarsus is the... Uh, is the, uh, is the level of the instability at the tarsometatarsal joint or is it at the calcaneocortal joint or is it at the level of the tarsocrural joint? All of these things are important in deciding what's the most sur appropriate surgical um, okay, method. So, so that's good. I think that's a very good point, actually. So we're basically saying even if there's a glaringly obvious long bone fracture, don't just focus on that bit, but actually make sure you've done an assessment, both neurological and other orthopedic Absolutely, and I, and I would probably the one the other thing that I would mention is in as you as you rightly said it's not only um, as our major body body assessments is also going to in, uh, include our neurological assessment is also assessing their, their mentation and their cranial nerves as well because one of the things that I have seen is in these polytrauma cases is head trauma and head trauma may not and may not always be obvious uh, but you may pick it up on things like your physical examination which uh, for example something like the Cushing reflexes where we get a bradycardia and a hypertension which is very suggestive of an increase in intracranial pressure and obviously these these cases need to be stabilized appropriately before going ahead with any surgical uh, procedure. And actually um, we, we saw a case together recently didn't we that um, <clears throat> was a dog that suffered polytrauma and um, I think we on the ECC service were a little bit guilty of focusing too much on on its orthopedic injuries in a way and not necessarily assessing the patient in its totality neurologically. Um, so I think that's a really valid point, really, is that we um, that you can miss other things if you don't look for them, and, and especially in polytrauma cases. Um, that's good. So, um, well, let's talk about radiography quickly, and then we'll come back onto one of the other things I want to talk to you about. But So in terms of plain, plain radiography, um, we obviously... Now, well, you, I guess, will get sent, and, and the radiology service will get sent radiographs by first opinion practitioners to yeah, evaluate. Correct, but I yeah. guess the question is, based on that and other experiences you've had, have you got any kind of tips or any kind of recurring mistakes that you come across that people in practice may do when they're radiographing suspected fractures? So, uh, I guess um, the obvious, the obvious one would be in terms of positioning. So. 
it's very reasonable to take a radiograph for for diagnosis if you want to see whether there's because you suspect there's a, a fracture to go ahead and then take a radiograph of that part of the body but it's also while you're there and you're taking an image it's it seems sensible to try and get good quality images so that they can be used uh, not only for diagnostic purposes but also for surgical planning as well and so uh, to that end i would i would suggest that these animals are are placed under general anesthesia so that you can get straight radiographs and that you um, and that you carefully select your exposures as well so that you don't overexpose the bone and because when we we what we have seen before we've seen radiographs which are overexposed and the radio and the fracture will look like a simple two-piece fracture but once we've got straighter radiographs and we've got the exposure correct, we've also seen identified fissures that are in the bone right. that are extending down towards the physis or extending down to the articular surface, which very much change your surgical planning and what you're going to do. Because if, there is a, if there's a fissure there and you are, you're not aware of it and you go and put an implant and you, you hit that fissure, you potentially could open up and make a simple or a more straightforward two-piece fracture into a three- or four-piece fracture. So I would always... Um, recommend that uh, you get good quality straight radiographs take a minimum of two orthogonal views or two um, perpendicular perpendicular views of the region of interest and if in doubt always remember you've got the other limb or contralateral limb if it's uninjured to um, compare, to compare to. and that's especially useful for young animals when physes are open as well and you're <laughs> not certain whether it's a fracture or if it's a physis so yeah um, and actually i guess that prompts me to think of two other things really because one of the things one of my things on ECC, I suppose, is that if we go back to the situation where I see a patient that suffered trauma um, and has what I suspect is a fracture, for me, that's, that's enough information, given that I'm not an orthopod, I'm not going to fix a fracture. So, I, you know, when I have a discussion with people about whether they need to anesthetize those patients and take pictures to identify the nature of the fracture, wake the patient up, and then someone else is going to fix it. I suppose I always have that kind of debate, is that if you're not a person that's actually um, able to offer orthopedic intervention, I suppose taking those pictures and confirming the severity of the injury has implications, for example, if the, if the client is unable to afford repair. Um, but I guess it would not be unreasonable if, let's say, for the sake of argument, money was not an issue in inverted commas, to say, well, I think that leg's broken. This patient needs to go somewhere else. We is it even appropriate for us to be taking radiographs under GA? We just send it on? No, absolutely. I agree with everything you said. I, I mean, I would think if, if that's the case, then it's very appropriate to take a radiograph, confirm there's a fracture, and then if you're, if in terms of the treatment, then that animal can be sent on or referred on elsewhere. What, coming back, what I would say is just briefly touching back on analgesia, um, I think an important thing to remember with these patients is that the probably the most painful thing with these patients is the instability of the fracture mm. site. So an important thing to do is before you they tr get transferred or referred on is to stabilize the limb, if at all possible, with uh, some kind of modified Robert Jones or Robert Jones bandage um, before they go get transported. For fractures of the um, antibrachium, for example, it's very reasonable to stabilize those with modif modified Robert Jones or a Robert Jones bandage. Same with fractures of the tibia. With fractures of the 
um, the femur and fractures of the humerus, it becomes a, a lot more difficult mm. to stabilise those kind of injuries with your straightforward bandage. And you're actually looking for uh, a humeral fracture to apply some kind of spike splint or something like that to stabilise the, um, the fracture. And actually, in humeral fractures, I would recommend that you don't apply any bandages because what can happen is if you don't actually span the whole joint and you go above and below the joint with your, your dressing, the weight of the, the bandage material can act like a pendulum and it can actually make it, make make it worse. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Um, cool, so mobilisation, again, something I think that a lot of us in emergency circles are probably guilty of overlooking. Um, but I suppose partly because you would need to sedate probably anaesthetise characterise the fracture and then put the dressing on. And I guess the, the alternative to that is sit in a cage, have lots of analgesia, and then whoever's going to do those interventions do them. But I, I think the whole point about transporting immobilised is, is really valuable. So yeah, I and I think, bro, like, if we... Once we've analgesed our patient appropriately with methadone then or a pure opioid, then I think it would be um, reasonable then to try and uh, put a uh, some kind of support dressing on. Okay, cool. And, I mean, I, um, you know, this is not really the time, but um, we have little tricks of nice nice ways of sedating patients very safely and stuff that we can talk about another day. Um, so the other thing I wanted to mention really was that one of the things that um, I guess we should talk about really is, is the difference between an open and a closed fracture. Um, and again, it sounds like an obvious question, but, but worth um, reminding us, please, if you don't mind, about the difference between an open and a closed fracture. So I guess... Uh there are lots of classification systems out there for open fractures. And what an open fracture classification system is doing is basically a system which is used to assess the severity of soft tissue injuries that are associated with the fractures. And there are a couple of systems out there, but probably the most common one used uh, is a classification system from type 1 to type 3. Briefly speaking, a type 1 is an open fracture and it results of um, an inside to outside injury where the bone is fractured and the, a, a sharp shard of bone will stick out of the soft tissues. Okay. It's often a, um, a small puncture wound, which is less than a centimetre um, and is associated with um, milder type of uh, trauma than uh, in high energy trauma than uh, a type 2 or a type 3. A type 2 uh, injury is where there's a skin wound present that communicates with the fracture but the soft tissue injuries are generally more extensive um, and they usually result of external trauma rather than internal trauma. And a type 3, um, they're characterised by severe comminution and extensive soft tissue injuries with variable levels of skin loss. And a type 3 is then further classified into A, B and C, where A is there is enough soft tissue to cover the wound uh, following fracture stabilisation. Type B is where um, there's bone exposure with periosteal stripping and type C where, where there's damage to the arterial blood supply um, and is uh, a near amputation type injury and the prognosis for those is very poor. So a type 3B open fracture is really, uh, so type 3C, C is that what's called? Open fracture yep. is the worst. Is the worst. Get. And in, in, um, in veterinary medicine when there is when there are these type of injuries where there's ma major damage to the arterial blood supply, it's very, very difficult to salvage. In the, in the human field, um, it's possible to take grafts from the contralateral limb and do anastomosis of the vessels to try and repair and salvage these injuries. But um, 
I think, unfortunately, in the veterinary field, what you're looking at a type 3C, you're probably looking at an amputation of the limb. Okay. Um, <clears throat> I think before we end, there's just, I guess there was one other thing that I really wanted to stress really was that um, we, I'm sure we're going to come back to this in future podcasts with you and other people as well, um, about the kind of big push that, that there is to try now and promote a kind of more rational use of, of antibiotics, not just in veterinary medicine, but also in, in human medicine. Um, and I guess for the purposes of today, what I wanted to ask you really was, in what patients with limb fractures would you consider using antibiotics? Because presumably they're not indicated in every patient that has a, a limb fracture. So... Um... I think it's worth um, clarifying at this point about the type of antibiotics that we can use and, and when we use them. And I would always use perioptive antibiotics. So that's antibiotics before we go to surgery, generally given intravenously. Um, and if they're given intravenously, about 30 to 20 minutes prior to surgery so that by the time you're actually doing the surgical procedure and you're at the at time of surgery, you've got high enough um, concentrations of the antibiotic in the, in the actual serum. Um, I wouldn't recommend using uh, topical antibiotics, so uh, powder or anything like that, into into a joint or at a fracture site because they can cause chemical reactions. Um, and subcutaneous antibiotics, if you're going to if you're going to give sub-Q antibiotics, then you need to think about giving them a lot longer beforehand. You can't just give them 20, 20 minutes or thirty minutes prior to surgery and expect them to be at therapeutic yeah, levels. Yeah. Um, because of orthopedics, we always put implants in generally, or a lot of the time we're putting implants in, generally all of the cases where I put implants in, I'll give perioptive antibiotics. If the surgery time is greater than 90 minutes, again, we'll give perioptive antibiotics. But for example, if we go back to the normal standard spay, I wouldn't give antibiotics for a spay because surgery time is less than 90 minutes. There's no, anti there's no implants going in, and it's a clean procedure. A lot of, uh, if a fracture is closed then it's a clean procedure i would continue antibiotics um every two hours during surgical time but after surgery the perioptive antibiotic period is um can be up to 24 hours after surgery but after that point i would stop okay. and i wouldn't give post-optive antibiotics unless there was a clinical indication such as there was an open fracture and at that point i would continue the antibiotics into the post-optive period yeah, cool. Fair enough. So I guess I guess just to, we're going to come back to this a lot, I think, really, but it's just about saying that there's probably some debate about under which circumstances antibiotic use is rational. Yeah. I guess experts in inverted commas will differ to an extent on some opinion, but there's definitely a population of patients where they're used, where they're not really considered yeah. necessary. And, and I would guess there's there would be certain cases where in orthopedics where it's still up for debate whether antibiotics um, in the post-operative period is appropriate or not. But, um, for example, patients with total hip replacements, um, some people advocate to continue antibiotics in the post-operative period because of the potential catastrophic nature. If there is an infection with a hip replacement, then if there was an infection with a, 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 an a straightforward radius and ulnar fracture. Because yeah. we have to remember that a fracture will go on to heal in the face of an infection as long as it's stable. So if you, have a, if you, if you do have an infection um, following a, a fracture repair, then it's important to get an appropriate bacteriology swab 
so you can get your culture and sensitivity res results and start the dog on appropriate course of antibiotics. And then remember that once a fracture is healed and you've documented that radiographically, that the implant can be removed later on down the line. Yeah. Awesome. Well, look, I think we're going to have to stop. Um, sadly, that's all that we have time for today. So thanks very much for joining me. I get the impression that we have quite a lot of things we're going to talk about in the future when I convince you to come back again. Um, so thanks, Alvin, for today. And um, as always, to the listeners, do feel free to get in touch and ask questions about today's podcast that I can route to Elvin um, or provide feedback. Um, and if you have any suggestions about future future topics, then do let us know. Um, so you can email me directly at sjasani at rvc.ac.uk. You can use the Royal Veterinary College's Facebook page or you can tweet us at Royal Vet College using the hashtag SAClinPod. And so until next time, take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.